Welcome back to the ROSC podcast, episode 10. Today, I have really big news, and I'm going to get to that in this list in a moment. I realize a bunch of people who have been listening to the podcast have been approaching me regarding the three insights, and they like the idea of the three insights on the blog, but it's missing from the podcasts. So what I'm going to try to do is include those at the beginning of the podcast to prime you, the listener, for the points you should be looking for. The second thing, which is the big news, we got our first question, which to me means engagement is happening. What I'm going to do is go through the podcast for today, and then at the end, answer the questions. Last announcement for now, and I promise we'll get onto the podcast. I've noticed that a lot of people are benefiting from the podcast, but I haven't made it clear that the podcast is complementary to a blog post and a newsletter that we have. Now, the newsletter is once a week, no spamming. It's every Saturday morning, unless something happens to me that delays it because I do do these by hand. And what's meant to happen is that the newsletter takes the blog post or the podcast topic, condenses it into three main bullet points that basically, if you don't want to go through all of the philosophy behind the actionable tactical items that we discuss, you can take the three most important actionable items from that week's blog post or podcast, take it to work, take it to any interaction, and be able to implement them and see the change happen. Almost as if you can close your eyes, not even understand how it works, but know that these are the things that make it work. Once a week, super short newsletter aimed at being as efficient and condensed and beneficial for you, the member of the community. The second benefit of signing up for the newsletter is down the pipeline, we're going to have a number of projects coming out based on three main pillars. The first pillar, heuristics, how you manage and deal with the room in the most critical of situations. Now, in the next couple of months, we have a beta of a cardiac arrest management app that I can guarantee you is not like any other cardiac arrest or medical management app you have seen. I'm biased, but I know I'm right. When this beta comes out, members of the newsletter and the community will get exclusive access to this beta, will be eligible to test and be able to give feedback, be able to give input, and your input may actually get to be implemented in the app itself. And we will have a list of founding members that will be known to the people when this app gets launched. You will be one of our founding members and get a chance to be able to help us develop this app and carve it into what only can be described as the perfect cardiac arrest management app. The second pillar is clinical. This is coming a bit further down the pipeline and we're still working out the kinks, but it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. We intend to create an educational platform that is created for the members by the members. If you as a member have a topic that you want to discuss, something you're qualified in, something you're comfortable with, something you're interested in that is within the field of healthcare and within your specific field, you will get a chance with our help to be able to create video course content. It can be two minutes long. It can be two hours long, but it will be put onto the educational platform, the site for where all the members can come together and paid members of that community will be able to enroll in your course and benefit from it. But here's the kicker. When they enroll in your course, you get the opportunity to earn a percentage of royalty. That's right. You have the opportunity to potentially get paid in order to create educational academic content, something that I think is missing from the academic healthcare world and could change things. The third pillar is psychological. We intend to create an exclusive, curated, refined community, again, for the members and by the members to be able to interact with each other, 
with the code of ethics being laid down by the content you're listening to right now. Being able to practice co-authorship, co-leadership, peer recognition, and peer mentoring within a community where you know that the people around you when you discuss a case, debrief on a case, or just talk about a particular interaction you had, or celebrate a case that you had, that the people around you are going to come to your aid and to your support with the code of ethics that we've laid down, with the principles of a growth mindset of the co-leadership and the co-mentorship and the peer recognition, all of that coming together within a community where you know that you can be vulnerable, where you can be the learner, where you can be wrong and be able to grow from that. These three things combined, I think, no, I know, will have the potential to be able to change the climate in which we practice www.rosc.life. Head over to the website, get signed up, get involved. There is no spamming. It will be once a week. And if that schedule changes either more frequently or less frequently, you will be notified immediately and your feedback will be welcome. Now onto the podcast. So the main point I want you to take away from this particular topic is your mind is constantly eavesdropping on the words you say. Your mind is constantly eavesdropping on the words you say. Point number two, as a leader, when you highlight a strength or a positive aspect of someone else, their mind will begin to look for those things that confirm your input or your insight. And number three, when you apply this principle, I want you to take note of how that ripples and what effect it has throughout your interactions with that person and with other people. Because when you start to do that for others, even if that person doesn't recognize it, you still feel something within yourself that might make you want to try it again. And this is a beautiful incorporation of what's known as the rejection game. This is a beautiful way to um, sort of try and get a sample, right? Try it with one person. It doesn't seem to work, but it still does something with you, something positive with you, and you want to try it again with someone else. I think it'll change a lot for you. And always remember that these things will never become a habit. They might become a habit, but to keep in mind that they never will become a habit will always help you to stay vigilant and always remember to keep actively remembering to implement these things. So everyone is listening. Now, we have been talking a lot up until now about this idea of if you want the environment to become intellectually and emotionally what you would like it to be, then you have to be the one to put in the work. You have to be the one to create that change that you expect to be given to you. And we're going to get a little bit more into that today on one aspect, but the thing that I think happens with me when I learned this myself and I think might happen with you is this feeling of everyone telling you that you need to do it. Everyone putting the burden of things on you, administrators, your manager, your team members, your family, your parents, your siblings, whatever it might be, it might sometimes feel like that old feeling of, you know, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, or no good deed goes unpunished, that a lot of people in the healthcare field that I've that I've seen, um, I don't want to say shy away from doing the work, but they tend to feel exhausted in doing the work because they know that the more they do, the more they're going to be taken advantage of because there are people who don't do the work. And it's sort of a hollow victory in that sense. The, I don't think that there's anybody who could feel more burned out than the person who gives, knowing that it's the right thing to do, and then just doesn't get anything in return in the sense of any recognition or in sense of any um, obvious change that they might see in front of them. 
And so to be in this community and to constantly hear the fact that you see things around you and, you know, I've been getting comments on social media about how other people need to understand this and need to change, pointing the finger back at yourself is probably the most difficult thing to do in general, let alone in this scenario. So you might wonder how on earth do you expect me to believe or accept that with all of these things happening, and even when I do put the, the work forward, I get not only not recognized, but almost rejected. Who could feel more burned out than that? I don't think anybody could feel more burned out than that. So how exactly does this work? What's important to remember is that this is a community of leaders. You're here because you resonate with the idea of being a leader, of being a leader as a team member or a leader as an official positioned leader. You have that within you. That's why this resonates with you. Because that quality is in you, you gravitate towards the situation in which you can give first, in which you can take the first step for everyone else. And that's most likely the reason why you feel the most slighted. So with this in mind, let's go back to this idea that your mind is constantly eavesdropping on the words you say. This is where the self-fulfilling prophecy comes from. The self-fulfilling prophecy is not that, you know, the world outside starts to metaphysically come together in a way that's based on how you think. That's not how it works. I think I mentioned in the last podcast or one of the recent podcasts where I have this persistent habit where... I always think the worst of a scenario. And when something happens where the potential bad could not only occur, but be the worst in the world, I become like Chicken Little. I, the sky is falling. I, I think of every possible way this moment could lead to that bad outcome. I can even plan it out in my head. This is how it's going to happen. Or even just as simple as like just having the fear of the worst happening. The problem with that end up becoming that whenever the bad did happen, I would be like, oh my God, I was right. And it would confirm what I was thinking to myself, what I was saying to myself. The problem is when it didn't happen, I didn't notice those times. I was just relieved. And I would honestly, within minutes, be on to the next thing that I would worry about. It was almost like I thrived on that. Not thrived. Certainly didn't thrive. But what I decided to do at that point was momentarily I did an exercise where every time I had a negative thought, I would write down the negative thought. More specifically, whenever I came across a situation where I thought this could lead to a bad thing, I would write down my prediction, quote unquote, of that bad thing happening. And then when the outcome finally occurred, I would write down what actually happened. What I came to find is that most of the things ended up having an outcome that was not only not what I thought, but it wasn't negative. And that helped me put into perspective, this is what a self-fulfilling prophecy is. The problem is when I looked back at those things that were positive, I still approached it thinking that everything was going to be negative. And so the world around me was negative and I would only see the negative things. And this is the point. Your mind is eavesdropping on the words you say. And that translates to what we've mentioned before, the reticular activating system in that a self-fulfilling prophecy becomes that your attention center starts to focus on those things that you have been predicting in your mind or that you have been worried that might occur. The thing you're giving energy to, that's where your attention center is going to go. The thing is, in a weird way, the brain wants to prove yourself right. It is going to support with evidence the things that you sort of feed it. Anxiety and excitement are physiologically the same exact thing. You get the same feelings. You get shaky, your heart starts racing, you breathe faster, you might have sweaty palms. Physiologically, anxiety and excitement are exactly the same. The only difference is the mental input. And so there are a lot of performance psychologists out there who talk about breaking anxiety by switching it and saying, oh no, this is not anxiety. This is me being excited. 
there's a lot to unpack there. But the point being, the emotion and the energy that you associate with the particular thing happening, that is what your brain is going to imprint. And the next time that thing happens, your brain is going to go back in the file and be like, oh, I remember giving this much energy to this thing, so it must deserve more attention. And that feeling is going to come back. That tangent is meant to come back to the fact that just like your mind is constantly eavesdropping on the words you say, it's also listening to what others say. And when those people say certain things about you, your brain, once it processes what's said, if you allow it to be processed, which sometimes you should, sometimes you shouldn't, will start to look for the evidence to support that thing. Even if you start to ask yourself, is that true? Your brain is going to start paying attention to the things that may or support or not support that. Most of the time, because of the insecurities we have, and because of the desire that we have to be the best at what we do, the brain unfortunately sort of goes towards the thing that does prove them right, whether they were right or not. Because this mechanism is in place for positive or negative, when someone says something good about you, if you allow yourself to internalize it, and that's key because someone like me, for example, will sit there and think of every reason why they're wrong, and they might be wrong. They might just be saying something nice about you that's not true, and it might not be malicious, but it just might be they were wrong. Regardless of that, if you listen to it and say, is that true? Your brain will start to prove it. Your brain will start to search for the evidence to suggest that. At the very least, you will want it to be true because of the feeling it gives you, and your brain will then start to look for that evidence. And if it doesn't find the evidence, it'll start to create the evidence through action. Now, this is all well and good for yourself, right? But again, we're not here to talk about what others should do for us to make our lives better. We're here to talk about how on earth us giving the environment to others who might not be grateful for it, giving it to them is going to make it better for us. And this is how, just like your mind is constantly eavesdropping on the words you say, your mind is constantly eavesdropping on the words others say. And because those things are true, others' minds are eavesdropping on the words you say. This was tricky for me because one of the fears I always had was if someone is doing something generally, if their general approach to something is not good, if it's rude, if it's condescending, if it's unhealthy, and I pick out one thing that they did well and start to praise them for it, what if that just reinforces their current behavior? That might be true. I'm not going to say that's completely untrue. There's no absolutes here. But it's not as prominent as I thought it was. And it's it, this is because I tried it. And I've been trying it continuously with others. What actually happens is the same thing, that when you highlight something that they've done well, or when you speak to them in a way that makes them realize that their mistake was human and that within that mistake was something good or from that mistake came something good. You're feeding their reticular activating system something to pay attention to. And sometimes you highlight for them something that was good about them that they didn't recognize or you mention something that you perceived that they feel is not within their repertoire and because of how good it felt to hear that, they will start to find evidence to suggest that that is true. And if they don't find the evidence, they'll create the evidence through action. This is a long path. Some people might change from the minute you tell them and the next time you interact with them, all of a sudden you're seeing that pattern. For some, it might take multiple times. But as a leader, as someone who can become a support system for the people around them, it is your privilege and responsibility 
to provide that for them, to provide that ability for them to focus their attention on those aspects and hone them. And as they start to come out more and more, you can pick on other things. In this same process, you can imprint in them the learner's mindset, the growth mindset. So in the end, what ends up happening is, number one, it influences the way you begin to speak to others because you find it just being better for yourself when you speak in that way, no matter what the outcome ends up being. But what it also does at the very least is creates an environment of comfort for the person to come to you and they might favor you in being their better self, but it begins to create a pattern. It begins to create momentum for yourself and for others around you. And when you start to fan those flames, that culture begins to grow. It actually becomes a culture and then it becomes a paradigm shift. And then it just becomes an identity of not only you, but the culture of the people around you. And even though it takes a long time and a lot of giving, selfless giving, to be able to create that culture around you, once you've created that culture around you, you are now surrounded by the very thing that you've been seeking out. Except the bonus here is that you created it. And it could very well be that because you put the effort into creating it, you might not even need that environment anymore, right? You might be the type of person who needs someone to listen, someone to give you their shoulder. And for some people, it's difficult to continue to give and give and give when you never get that shoulder back. And that could be detrimental for some. But some people can wrap their head around the idea that being for others what you want for yourself actually ends up being fulfilling to yourself. This is an added bonus that you will end up creating the environment around you where people will want to be there for you. You've basically made your bed, but in a good way, because that's typically a bad saying. But you've created the space for you to have a comfortable place to rest. And now it's time for listener questions. Although in this case, it's listener question. I thought how funny it would be if I started this whole listener questions thing and this ended up being the one question I get for like the next few months and I don't get another question. But then I thought, who cares? So it's awesome to have a question. I mean, I'm super excited about it because it just means there's engagement and it just means there's thinking going on. And it's an honor for me because I'm just like talking about imposter syndrome in the beginning. Who am I to answer these questions? But really what it is, is it's just a dialogue, right? It's me just giving my thoughts and maybe it'll give some ideas to you for your own answer to the question. Anyway, the question is this. I don't buy the idea of happy-go-lucky sim environments. People retain more from stressful situations. I don't think people should be put down or embarrassed, but I do tell them, hey, you just killed this patient in a sim environment. I mean, I have a good relationship with them and they know I trust their skills and want them to learn, but am I a bad teacher? So this question brings two main principles into mind for me. The answer is, no, you're not a bad teacher. And I think in reality, we're on the same page. Maybe there's something that can be added here that may already exist, but putting it in a concrete um, plan might actually make it more implementable, if that's a word. The first thing is the definition of optimism. I may have mentioned this already in a previous podcast as well. I don't remember because I'm making content at different periods of time and I mentioned it in one place and not the other. But the definition of optimism is not to think that everything's doing well when things are actually on fire. That classic meme of the little dog with a cup of coffee and it's saying this is fine and everything is on fire behind them. That's not optimism. What optimism actually is and I think this is the most all-encompassing definition I could come up with, optimism is seeing a problem as a problem, but seeing the problem as the first step to going towards a potential solution or solutions. 
The difference between that and being pessimistic is looking at the problem, dwelling on the problem, and seeing the problem as a hard stop, as a wall. So to summarize that again more quickly, optimism is not thinking everything is fine when things are not. Optimism is looking at something that's not fine, seeing that it's not fine, and finding or going on the path towards getting a solution rather than being stopped by the problem. And so I think this covers the concern mentioned in the question about sim shouldn't be a happy-go-lucky environment. Absolutely not. It's meant to reinduce the stress that exists in a stressful environment. And as I mentioned before, you don't rise to the occasion, you fall to the level of your training. Same thing with fighter pilots. They fly in stressful situations and they have a checklist, a mental checklist, in order to cognitively decrease the load so that they can function in the environment of stress because stress will create problems when it comes to functioning cognitively. So allowing the stressful environment to occur and being blunt about you just killed the patient with this action, that isn't the problem. The problem, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, is the transaction that you create as a teacher with your learner. The transaction is such that you will create, as, an, as a teacher, you will create an environment for that person to be able to make the mistakes and then figure out a solution to learn from those mistakes in exchange for that person being prided on being a learner, not on being intelligent. Because it is not possible for a teacher to teach and to help develop someone when they are more interested in walking back their wrong answer and trying to get the right answer. That's not what this is about. And that leads me to the second part of the question, which is this. Making someone understand that you just screwed up in this situation. The action you took on this sim patient killed the patient. The next step from there is how the learner deals with that. And that comes with what I just said, creating the environment of understanding that you're a learner and having the failure is sort of the point. But the next step at that point is to turn that feedback into what's the next step here. So you as a teacher, you as a leader, want to impart on that person guidance on how to come up with the next step, even if it's giving them the next step to move forward. Okay, well, so now what we're going to do is we're going to put this action into practice, and that's going to be the first step to curing that problem. And part of that comes with understanding the mental frame of why that action occurred, right? Asking that person, I noticed you did this thing, and then you took this step. What made you take that step? And part of creating the culture as a leader is to make the learner understand that I'm not asking you that question in an incriminating or a scrutinizing way. It's to understand your thought process. And that person should feel comfortable giving you their thought process, knowing that it may be way off the mark. And that's okay. That's actually important. And that's why I am trying to include these insights as well, because it doesn't help to create abstract ideas. I remember one time an intern coming to me mentioning that one of their senior residents pulled them aside and said, you know all the nurses hate you, right? That was feedback, according to this senior resident. What does that intern walk away with? Nothing other than just having their self-esteem completely destroyed and now them being more self-conscious and more on edge. It's completely ridiculous. And this actually happened. The goal is, here's the problem. What's the solution? Or what's the first step to coming out of this problem into a better place? When you create the environment of understanding that a problem being presented is not an endpoint, but it's a signal. It's a signal for you to say, I need to come up with a solution. It's literally the same as when you touch a hot item on the stove and your spinal reflex immediately pulls your hand back. 
action to reaction. You don't sit there and think about it. You don't sit there and say, this has occurred. It's an immediate action. It's a signal for you to take a next step. That is what the goal is in being presented with a fault or a problem or a mistake or a failure. That should immediately trigger the person to go into solution mode. You as a leader are imparting the techniques and the tools or the habit loop for that person to go into that process. And eventually that person will be ingrained with that process. That's more important for a person to come out of residency or training of any sort than anything else to be able to hit a failure and switch into solution mode to then go find the information. That's what training should be for. And that's all about the growth mindset. Um, as always, send your questions into podcast at rosk.life. Additionally, just feel free to send your feedback, send your thoughts, send comments, anything of support or anything of constructive criticism. Let us know topics that you'd like us to cover. Because this is your community, I would love, love, love to hear your thoughts on where you feel the community should go so that it could benefit you and the people around you more. If you want the question to be answered privately and not publicly, then let me know. And I'd be happy to help in that way too. It's an honor to be asked any question because it means that you feel some value in what you're getting here. With all of that rambling done, I will see you next time.